The third section of the Confession of Faith is a really important one. I call it God-Centered Living, Freedom and Boundaries. We, I said that the, the section on the covenant ends in chapter 20, which speaks about the, the extent of the gospel and the grace thereof. But chapter 21 proceeds to a new topic, and it deals with the question of Christian liberty and liberty of conscience. I don't have my quotations with me today. Uh, that's okay. I will paraphrase for you. There are, there are three. We don't realize how important the doctrine of Christian liberty is in the minds of uh, the Reformers and the Puritans. To us, it's another doctrine in the system of Christian theology. For them, it was much more. Uh, John Calvin, in the Institutes, when he comes to speak about um, the doctrine of Christian liberty, says, you cannot properly understand justification by faith unless you understand Christian liberty. The two go hand in hand. And he, of course, is writing in a context of concern about the Roman Catholic um, imposition of religious actions upon God's people. Both the Pope, the bishops, and even the priests would claim that they had the right to tell people how to live in certain ways, what to do and what not to do. And Calvin argued that when, when, when the Roman Catholics argued that way, they said, this is how you please God. This is how you uh, continue on your pathway to heaven. Grace entered your heart when you were baptized. You have to follow the seven sacraments and you have to be obedient and hope that one day uh, purgatory won't last that long for you and you'll be welcomed into God's presence. And of course, everything about that undermines the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And Calvin understood that. And he knew that all of those things that were demanded by the priests, by the bishops, by the pope, were violations of the principle of Christian liberty. That, as our confession says in paragraph 2, God alone is Lord of the conscience, and has left it free from the commandments, the doctrines and commandments of men, which are in anything contrary to his word and not contained in it. It's a really important statement about the fact that religious leaders have no right to impose on God's people anything that uh, would be a, a requirement for sanctification if it's not commanded in God's word. We, we can't tell you to do anything unless God has commanded you to do it in the word. If we add something, you know, one of my silly illustrations of this is to say, well, all the men who come to church have to wear yellow shirts because God won't accept your worship unless you wear a yellow shirt. Obviously, a silly illustration, but that's the kind of thing that was going on. So Calvin, that's my first illustration. Calvin says that you don't understand justification if you don't understand Christian liberty. John Owen, the great John Owen, uh, stated that there are two, or no, the way he put it was, the second most important principle of the Christian or the Protestant Reformation was the principle of Christian liberty. Now that's raising it pretty high. The second most important principle. Um, because he also understood the relationship between justification and liberty. And he goes on in the paragraph to talk about uh, what he calls pretended guides. And of course, he's also referring to uh, priests of any kind who would impose upon God's people religious demands that go beyond what the Bible says. Now, neither of these men are talking about the rights of the, the civil government, the civil magistrate, to make laws for their people. They're talking about when you are taught 
that God will only accept you because you do this or you don't do that. And the Bible doesn't say anything about that. That's a violation of your Christian liberty. The third person who uh, I usually cite in testimony of this is Samuel Bolton. You may uh, be familiar with his book, The True Bounds of Christian Freedom. And uh, in that book, he says God has left us two uh, blessings. He's left us the blessing of Christian faith, and he's left us the blessing of Christian freedom. And he bases that on Paul's words in Galatians, stand fast in the liberty with which Christ has set you free. So I, I, I cite those three um, sources, starting with Calvin and then Bolton and Owen, to demonstrate the, the central importance in the mind of the, the Reformers and especially the Puritans of the doctrine of Christian liberty. You have been set free by Christ, and no religious leader in the world has the right to tell you that you must do this or that, or you cannot do this or that, because God won't accept you unless it's found in Scripture. And uh, so chapter 21, when we begin to realize its importance, um, it, it, it makes sense that it becomes the head of an important section of the Confession of Faith. And if you begin to think about chapter 21 and its place in the Confession, you realize that the subsequent chapters in one way or another, have to do with the doctrine of Christian liberty. For example, chapter 22 of religious worship and the Sabbath day. Well, the regular principle of worship that was developed in Geneva and in some of the other continental cities and that was taken up by the Puritans was intended to be a protection, a guard for the liberty of Christians. Because the, the argument is, if religious leaders impose upon you an action in worship, now remember, worship is time that is devoted to honor God. If religious leaders impose upon you in worship an activity that God himself has not commanded, they are violating your conscience in doing so because they are requiring you to do something as if God had commanded it when he has never said, you must do this or you must do that. So the whole, the, the basis of the doctrine of the regulative principle of worship, indeed it is to maintain the purity of the worship of God, but at the same time it's intended to protect the freedom of Christian people so that the leaders in the church don't impose upon you those things that are not commanded in Scripture. To, to do so is to bind your liberty rather than to set you free because you're required to participate in things that you know God has not commanded. So uh, the the immediate uh, chapter that immediately follows uh, of Christian liberty is this chapter on religious worship and the Sabbath day, the the one day that God has called us to obey him. Um, Chapter 23, it's it's a chapter that's not of the level of importance that um, many of the others are, but notice how it begins. A lawful oath is a part of religious worship. Okay? It it, it ties it in immediately to religious worship. Now, the religious worship here is not so much public worship that we will enjoy tomorrow in our various congregations, but it's a recognition that when one stands before um, 
the proper authorities and has to take an oath, one does so as a religious act before God. Um, you know, probably all of us at one time or another have received a, sent- uh, yeah, a sentence, a summons for jury duty. It is a sentence, I know. It's like a punishment. Um, I have been called, I was, when we lived in San Diego County, I was called many times. And uh, once I had to serve on a jury, uh, every time that you go into the courtroom and you begin what they call the voir dire process, which is where they figure out who will be impaneled on the jury, you, you are expected to raise your hand and give some kind of affirmation that you will do so uh, according to uh, truth and honor. Or, you know, I don't remember how it's phrased. When I've been in the courtroom to do that, I was not so much concerned with the judge and the bailiffs and the other people who were, who were being impaneled. I was concerned with the fact that I was standing before God. And I was making a commitment that if I were to be placed on the jury, I would do so with honesty and truth as best as I'm able to do so, weighing the evidence put before me and obeying the law as the law is put before me. And it was to me that was a religious action. Now, it's a civic action because... I was called by the duly appointed authorities to come and serve on the jury. But it was a religious action because when I raised my hand, I was doing something with God's presence. So it was a religious action. And so chapter 23 is about oaths and vows and um, what we can and can't do. We can take oaths, a vow is to be made only to God. Chapter 24 of the civil magistrate. You know what? That's a real important question about Christian liberty. What right does the magistrate have? No, let me put it this way. What do I owe to the magistrate as God's minister for good? And what are the boundaries that the magistrate has towards me? Where is my liberty bound by obedience as the Bible presents it? And where am I free? Where is the overstepping? We've talked a lot in the last couple of years of the overstepping of the civil magistrate in many places. I think you endured more of that, certainly, than we did in Texas. You, you know, your, your governor and your magistrates, who are appointed by God, let's give them the respect that, that are due to them. And I'm not a fan of your governor. I don't miss him having moved from California. Okay, But he's the one that God has placed in that chair in Sacramento. He deserves our honor. But he overstepped his bounds by a long way. Where in Texas, we had a governor who was much more sympathetic to the, the proper limits of authority. You, you had to deal with that. You know, where, where, where are you bound to the civil magistrate more than perhaps we did in Texas? But that's a matter of Christian liberty. Because if we fail to obey the civil magistrate as we ought to, it's a sin against God, ultimately, who has placed that person or those persons in authority. What about marriage? Is marriage just a, you know, whoever I want, whenever I want thing? Marriage is to be between one man and one woman. Neither is it lawful for any man to have more than one wife, nor for any woman to have more than one husband at any time. Now, that's a general statement, okay? Marriage belongs to creation. It's right for Christians to be married, but it's right for non-Christians to be married. Married is a man and woman thing. Our confession of faith helps us with the current problems that we face in our society. It's very clear. But if I'm a 20-year-old Christian young man 
what are the, the boundaries, what are the permissions and boundaries that I have for whom I may marry? And that's what this chapter lays out for me. There are certain people that I cannot marry. First off, those within certain um, con- uh, bounds of consanguinity and affinity. That means blood relations or relations by marriage. There are certain people that I can't marry. And if I'm a believer, I can't marry those who are not believers in Christ. So my, limit, my liberty is limited by the word of God. You see, it directly relates to the question of Christian liberty. hope you're seeing this, that chapter 21 serves as the head of a whole section. Now, if you wanted to argue that when we come to chapter 26 of the church and then 27 of, uh, Christian, of the communion of the saints and then 28 through 30 on the sacraments, if you want to argue that's a new unit, I will only degree, disagree with you a little bit, but I want to keep it within the bounds of Christian liberty. Here's why. When you look at um, chapter 26 of the church, one of the things that you will notice over and over again is the, the um, statements that refer to the lordship of Christ. And Christian liberty is all about relating to Christ as Lord. What do I owe him as my head? So you, 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 know, you get these statements. Um, paragraph 1 just defines the church for us. Under Christ the head thereof. Um, paragraph 4 is really important, it's, and it's frequently misunderstood. Maybe I'll take a moment or two to talk about why it's misunderstood. The Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church in whom by the appointment of the Father... All power for the calling, institution, order, or government of the church is invested in a supreme and sovereign manner. Neither can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof, but is that Antichrist, that man of sin and son of perdition, that exalts himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God, whom the Lord shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. This is probably the most frequently accepted, E-X-C-E-P-T-E-D, paragraph in the Confession. No, 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 the Pope's not Antichrist. Wait a minute, hold on, slow down. Let's take a look closely, more closely at this. One of the reasons that people want to take an exception is the, the tie that this makes with Second Thessalonians. And they say, wait a minute, is this saying that whatever Pope happens to be on the throne in the Vatican when Christ returns is being described here? And I would say, if that's what you think, you're missing the point, Okay. The first part, this is not in a chapter about eschatology, about the last things. This is in a chapter about the church. Okay, Let's reread the first part of paragraph 4. The Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church, in whom by the appointment of the Father, now these are strong statements, aren't they? Lord Jesus Christ, full title, head of the church, the appointment of the Father, in whom all power for the calling, institution, order, or government of the church. By the way, that's the order of the next paragraphs. 8, 9, 10, 11. Deal with, I'm sorry, 5, 6, 7, 8. Deal with calling, institution, order of government, uh, uh, calling, institution, order, or government of the church. That's what the next paragraph is. It's giving you the outline of what's coming forward. All power for these things is invested in a supreme and sovereign manner. We read that and we say, yeah, okay, that's Christ. We're thankful that he is the head of the church. 
And then all of a sudden the Pope comes. But notice, neither can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof. Wait a minute. The Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church. The Pope of Rome cannot be the head thereof. But what does he claim? What does he claim? He claims headship on earth over the church of Jesus Christ, meaning he is placing himself in the seat of Christ. This and, and all of the things that follow, he, Christ alone is the head of the church by the appointment of the Father. He's given all power for these things in a supreme and sovereign manner. They put in this in the strongest possible language to say anyone on earth who would claim to hold the prerogatives of Jesus Christ is antichrist. Anyone. When you read the paragraph like that, you say, of course the Pope has to be antichrist. Not the, the last days uh, the, the, that dispensationalists teach, you know, will be uh, in Jerusalem and Jesus will come in power and, and stomp on his head. That, no, that's not this point. The point is that the Pope makes blasphemous claims that he is head over the church on earth, and the Pope or anyone else who makes that claim must be viewed as an antichrist. Uh, if you'd like to do a little bit of reading on that, John Calvin's commentary on 2 Thessalonians is very helpful. And another one that doesn't even address the question of the Pope, but that is really helpful in terms of exegesis is Gregory Beale's NIV application commentary on 2 Thessalonians 2, where he shows how all Paul's language is about the church. The, the temple language is about the church. And all you have to do is take one step further and throw the Pope in there, and you can see that this makes a whole lot of sense. In fact, at, you know, someone has pointed out that at the time of the Reformation, among the Protestants who were Orthodox... There were two doctrines, apart, apart from the regular doctrines of the doctrine of God, Trinity, Incarnation. There were two characteristic doctrines of Protestantism that everyone believed, and they were justification by faith alone and that the Pope is the Antichrist. And if you denied that the Pope is the Antichrist, the only two camps that you could fit into were the Arminian camp, because they denied it, and the Socinian camp, that's a, the Socinians were a, a, a cult, really, who were extreme biblicists, but anti-supernaturalists. And they denied that Pope is the Antichrist. But Lutherans, Reformed, all the Baptists, everybody agreed that this statement is true. Now, I could say a lot more about it, too. In fact, there are roots of this statement in chapter 8 of Christ the Mediator, where the, the, we have a presentation of the exalted nature of Christ in his office um, and a statement that he is the only mediator and no one else can take his place as mediator. In chapter 21, which speaks about Christian liberty and talks about the fact that no one on earth has the right to impose upon us um, doctrines or practices that aren't commanded by Scripture, that has reference to what the Pope and the Roman Catholic system does, to, to take this out, it's like, it's like pulling up a tree by its roots in your yard. You don't know how much damage it's going to do that you can't see once you pull it up because its roots are extensive. And that's what happens here. If you pull this out, you're doing more damage. So anyways, back to the Christian liberty idea. 
what we find about the church, the doctrine of the church here, is that it speaks to us about what the church is and what our responsibilities are in the church. Um, what, what, who are elders and what do elders do? Pardon me, who are deacons and what do deacons do? What do we as a congregation do as we participate in the church? So it certainly relates to the question of Christian liberty. Chapter 27, of the communion of saints. It's another neglected chapter, but it answers the question, what obligation do I have to my brothers and sisters in the church, and what obligation do I have to those who are outside of the church but are brothers and sisters in Christ? You know what? That's an important question. It really is. We read by it very quickly, and, and, and I acknowledge it's in some antique language, which might be a little bit challenging to understand, but that's the basic point. What do I owe to you? What do you owe to me as brothers and sisters in the church of Christ? Then chapters 28, 29, and 30 of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Look at 28.1. Count with me. How, how, I, I, sometimes I smile when I read this paragraph because it's almost over the top in the language that it uses to speak about baptism and the Lord's Supper. Okay. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances. That word's important because it's related to the word ordained. Okay, they're commandments of God. Positive, that means it's a commandment that comes to God, comes from God to us through the new covenant. They're a sovereign institution. Okay, so again, where our eyes are lifted up to heaven, we think about the fact that baptism and the Lord's Supper come to us because God has commanded them. They are appointed. That's like the word institution. They're appointed by the Lord Jesus, the only lawgiver, to be continued in his church to the end of the world. You notice how frequently you have that language of, of command, appointment, institution, divine, sovereign, etc. That's all intended to say we do what we do, we practice what we practice because God has commanded us to do so. And so our view of baptism, which distinguishes us from our pedo-baptist friends, we do so not because of tradition, not because um, of, of any, not for any other reason, except the fact that this is what God has commanded us to do in Scripture, and that's our commitment. That's why we do what we do, because we believe that that's what the Word of God teaches us to do. So then you, you look at chapter 29 of baptism. Baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ, that same kind of powerful language. And then the Lord's Supper, um, very similar to what you have in Westminster and Savoy. Uh, why do we do the Lord's Supper? We do it because God has commanded us to do so. And we do it in the way that we do because he has commanded us. So you have that whole section and everything is related in one way or another to Christian liberty. Has the Lord commanded it? If he has, yes, then we're obliged to obey it. If the answer is no, then no religious leader has the right to impose it upon us. Then in chapters 31 and 32, you have the last section of the confession. Uh, you can simply call it the last things. And chapter 31 speaks about what I call personal eschatology, what happens to individuals. And 32, cosmic eschatology, what happens to the cosmos. What is God's purpose for the end of all things? And so we, we have in 32 chapters, and by my outline in four sections, um, basic principles, 
have a long section on the covenant and how God gives the grace of salvation to sinners. Then we have a, a, a long section that works out the principles of our salvation so that no one imposes upon us that which God has not commanded. And then finally, we have these two chapters on the last things. Now, let me suggest one more thing to you that's really important about the confession of faith. And I hope that this will make sense to you as well. I like to teach my students that it's important to read the confession, what I call sideways. Here's what I mean. It has 32 chapters. And it would be easy for us to look at the 32 chapters and say, there are 32 discrete topics that are being presented to us here, and go to one of the chapters and read it as if it's the entirety of what we are to believe on that doctrine. But by reading the confession sideways, we're reminded of the fact that any doctrine that appears in the confession of faith has relationship to the other doctrines before it or after it. If you're reading in the earlier part of the the early chapters, you need to think about questions like this. What doctrine is this anticipating that will be fleshed out later on in the confession? And if you're reading later on in the confession, you're asking the question, what doctrine does this flesh out that was stated more briefly earlier on in the confession of faith? The confession doesn't have a chapter on the Holy Spirit. But is there no teaching on the Holy Spirit? Actually, there's loads of teaching on the Holy Spirit, but you have to read it sideways, horizontally, to be able to see that teaching on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Is there a chapter on God the Father? Actually, there isn't. So, But we see God the Father presented to us regularly throughout the confession, so we have to read it sideways. Um, one, of the, one of the interesting things to notice is there are about... I don't have the exact number to hand. There are about 15 chapters that begin with the word God. Okay? Now, every time that you see that word appear, especially when it begins a chapter, you know what you should do? You should think about what you learned in chapter 2 of God and of the Holy Trinity. Because what is said there in fullness is implied when that word appears at the beginning of a sentence, at the beginning of a chapter. So you, you, you recognize that there's a flow of thought that moves back and forth throughout the, the doctrines of the confession, and it enriches your understanding of Christian theology to look at it in that way. Um, when I was just speaking to you about 26.4 and the Lord Jesus Christ and the Pope, 26.4, the part that speaks about Christ is really a summary of much that has already been stated about who Christ is and all of his glory and beauty and wonder. And when you you remember all of the wonderful things that are said about the Savior throughout the confession, not just back in chapter 8 of Christ the Mediator, but even all the way back to chapter 2, which speaks about his deity and as the second person of the Holy Trinity, when you you put all of that in mind and then you, you realize that the Pope claims to hold on earth an office that belongs to Christ, you realize how blasphemous it is, see? But that's because you've read it horizontally or sideways, um, letting the confession go back and forth and, uh, and teach you those things. So that's a really brief, inadequate summary of the confession and how it's put together. If somebody else had a different outline, 
They thought that there were reasons or, or ways that the, the structure was put together. I, I'm, I'm not going to argue about that, but I, I do believe, having done all the reading that I've done and, and the thinking and uh, considering what others have said, I think that this is how it's put together. Four units, first principles, the covenant, Christian liberty, and then the last things. All right. Now, uh, Rich, I've totally lost track of time. So tell me, what is, what is the time we're aiming for to conclude this session? And then we have a Q&A. Everything's to be done by 1230. Is that right? Okay. Okay. Now I want to talk about how to teach the confession of faith to our children. How do we raise them up to be God glorifying? <clears throat> um, remember the words that we saw in Hebrews ten twenty three. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. How do we do that? How do we hold it fast so that we don't waver? Well, I'm going to suggest one word to you. And the one word needs some explanation, but the one word is the method to use to help our children and even to help ourselves, and it's the word catechism. Catechism. Probably you expected me to say that. You know, the, the Westminster Assembly wrote a confession of faith, but they also wrote two documents. One is more famous than the other the Westminster Shorter Catechism and the Westminster Larger Catechism. Not longer, but larger catechism. The larger catechism was intended for adults. The shorter catechism was intended for children, though most of us spend our time trying to learn the shorter catechism. Uh, it says something about our day and age, maybe. But the Baptists recognized that the method of catechizing children in families was a method of great benefit and great help. And so in 1693, now our Confession of Faith was first published in 77. In 1693, at, at a general assembly of the churches, William Collins, now if you think back to our first session, I said he was probably one of the two editors of the, the Confession itself. William Collins was asked to edit the Westminster Shorter Catechism into a form that could be used by the families of the Baptist churches. Ba they called themselves baptized churches, not Baptist churches, the baptized churches. And uh, apparently he did because the earliest known or existing copy, the copy that's known to exist is from 1695, but it's marked the fifth edition which means there were four editions before it. And when they say edition, that's what we mean by printing. So the fifth printing in 1695. By all accounts, William Collins did this, and he produced for the churches a catechism. And that's what I have called the Baptist catechism nowadays. Now, the question of Keech's catechism is related to this. Um, I don't want to really run down that road right now. Just to say that it's... It, there are versions that are called Keech's Catechism. If you pay close attention, they've been changed. I think that Keech probably edited it later on and it came to be identified with him. But in its beginning, it was not from Keech. It was from William Collins and adopted by the associations. Now, there's a problem that we have today. 
And uh, here's the problem, and I, I, I've run into this myself. Um, earlier this year, in August, I was invited to uh, speak at a church on the Gulf Coast of Texas, right near the Louisiana border. It's a bilingual church. Everything that's done is done in English and in Spanish, everything. Uh, all the preaching is translated on the fly. The pastor stood next to me. He's, a, he's an Anglo from Texas, but he's fluent in Spanish, so I would say a couple of sentences. He would translate them. All the Bible readings were translated into Spanish or read both in English and in Spanish. Every hymn that was sung, you sing in one language first, and then the same hymn in the other language immediately after. So everything was done in Spanish. And we did, along with the, the, the worship services, we did a live podcast for some men that, that my friend, the pastor friend, um, knew. He had, he had formerly ministered in southern Mexico, and he is involved in helping to disciple some pastors in southern Mexico and then in Central America. And he wanted to do a live session with them, and he wanted to talk about catechisms. And he told me that one of the difficulties that he has encountered with the pastors down there in Central America, and it's the same difficulty that I encountered when I was younger, is that the word catechism is identified with Roman Catholics. You know, when I was a kid, now I, my, I was not raised as a Roman Catholic, even though I have an Irish name. I was raised in a Swedish church, my mother's church, so I didn't go to catechism. But every Monday... All the rest of the kids from my class, because we lived in a Roman Catholic neighborhood, all the rest of the kids in my class would go to catechism. You know what? They hated it. It was dull and boring, and they didn't want to go, and they complained every single week that they had to go to catechism. Well, I didn't want to go to catechism if they said it was that bad. And so I identified it in my own mind and experience with Roman Catholics. Any of you have that same kind of thing? You know, uh, I, I asked a, a friend, a woman... Um, a very Irish woman, um, what was her experience with catechism? She said, well, I, I didn't actually have to go. I said, why not? She said, because we went to a Roman Catholic school. Catechism was for the kids who went to the public schools, and they didn't get instruction in, in the Roman Catholic schools. So she wasn't any help to me, except by helping me to distinguish between the two. But I had this problem, and a lot of people have this problem. When you talk about catechism, they, they think that you're talking about something that belongs to the Roman Catholics. You're becoming a papist. Well, no. Catechism is a, a practice that goes all the way back to the New Testament. It's just a word that speaks about methodology, is all that it is. Look, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. First Corinthians 11, verse 2. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions, whoa, just as I delivered them to you. Now, let me, I know that this is very unusual to do. Let me read to you three Greek words. And listen to these words. I know that probably for most of you, you won't be able to translate them in your minds. But I just want you to listen to the sound of them because they are important. 
When Paul says keep the traditions, he says this, tas paradoses kateketa. Kateketa. You hear that? You hear something that maybe sounds similar to an English word there? Well, traditions is a good word, and Paul uses it more than, than once in his letters. It doesn't mean customs that are developed by humans, but rather Paul uses it to refer to apostolic teaching. That's what the traditions are here. You know, that's another word that has been identified with Roman Catholicism that we need to recover. There are some people, when you say the word tradition, that's all they think, unwritten religious responsibilities that come to us from priests. But the Bible uses the word, and that's not the point. It's about apostolic doctrine and apostolic practice. Paul uses it occasionally to refer to the things that he's taught the young churches. So that in 2 Thessalonians 2.15, we read this. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. So here and there, when Paul uses the word, he's telling the Christians in Corinth or in Colossae, or I'm sorry, in Thessalonica, that they are to take these things, these apostolic doctrines and practices, and put them in their minds and let their their lives as Christians and their church be shaped and molded by them. Stand fast and hold them. Now, the translation that I just read to you, keep the traditions, keep is an English word. It carries the sense of hold on and don't let go. But the Greek word is a form of the verb kat echo. And I'm sure that you can hear the linguistic similarity to catechize or catechism in English. In fact, catechize and catechism are simply English words that are transliterations of the Greek words, and they mean to hold fast and to never let go. Now, there's a, there's a danger in what I've just done, because we usually cannot draw a straight line from a Greek word to an English word and say they mean the same thing. For example, our English word dynamite is a form of the Greek word dunamis. You hear the the phonetic relationship between the two. Dynamite is destructive. Dunamis means power. God has dunamis. And God's power is not destructive. So to read dynamite and dunamis in, in the same way is a mistake. But with kateko and catechism, they do mean the same thing. They imply the same thing. Catechism is an unusual word in English because we only use it really for instruction, to help people to learn. And that's exactly what Paul is say, saying here. In 1 Corinthians 11:2, the apostle praises the Corinthians because they've continued in the things that they were taught. You know what's ironic about this? He says this even as he's about to rebuke them for their failures. You know, we think of the Corinthians in the bad sense, but there are some good things that Paul says about them, and here he's glad to say this about them. When he interprets the parable of the sower and the seeds, our Lord says this, the ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2 
Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received and in which you stand, by which you also were saved, if you keep or hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. One commentator on 1 Corinthians 15 says this, If to this day you have kept in memory and still keep in your hearts the words which I once declared to you as good news. That's what catechism is seeking to do to put into memory and to put into the heart, metaphorically, not the organ, but our internal being, these truths. Hebrews 3.6, Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterwards, but Christ as a son over his own house, whose hope we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end, if we hold fast. Hebrews 3.14, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our confidence to the end. Hebrews 10.23, we've already seen this verse a couple of times today. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. You know, our word, kat echo, is used 50 times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. We call it the Septuagint. And almost always with the sense, keep or hold fast. Now, I hope you see my point. To catechize is to hold fast, to grab onto something, and to not let it go. Especially by means of the mind and the memory. Keep the apostolic traditions. Maintain the confession. Remember the gospel. Catechize, catechism, is a wonderful Bible term implying understanding and faithful commitment to what has been learned. And in modern English usage, it means to use methods to assist the memory as we learn. These are called, in fancy language, mnemonic devices. And these devices help us to keep truth in mind. In fact, in most catechisms, that's the question and answer method. And it has roots that go all the way back to the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther published his small catechism in 1529 as an aid to parents as they teach their children. And he has been followed by many who have recognized the benefits of this system of learning. The question and answer method has some real advantages. It allows the question to jog the memory for the correct answer. So if I ask this question, how many persons are there in the Godhead? Now that question, it has persons plural, right? How many, easy for us to understand, the Godhead. How many persons are there in the Godhead? And the answer is specifically about Trinitarianism. And you will reply, if you memorize the Catechism, there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. If you don't know the Catechism, you'll still be able to answer the question, there are three persons, the Father, Son, and Spirit. Right? You could do that. How many persons are there? Well, that's what a Catechism does. It, it opens up to us the ability to ask questions in a sense, giving a hint in the question that helps the learner to be able to grasp that truth and bring it back to the mind. 
Now, the basic idea of a Christian catechism is to provide a means by which believers can easily remember the most basic truths of the Christian faith. And I'm sure that you will agree with me that this is something that we desperately need today. We all recognize that our culture has quickly degenerated around us, so much so that Christian concepts that were once generally recognized in society are nearly forgotten. In fact, most of the religious words that we use today have little or no meaning to unbelievers, and when we say them, their concept of what we say is very different from from our own. All you have to do is say the word God, and who knows what is in the mind of an unbeliever when you say God. I've been talking to people at times and ask them questions like, who is God? My grandmother. Well, what do you mean your grandmother? Well, she's dead and she's gone, but I pray to her when I'm in need. Who is God? That tree over there. What do you mean that tree? God is in everything. God is everywhere. And so the spirit of God is in that tree. That's called panentheism, by the way, if you want to know the technical term for it. This is what our culture has come to. I remember years and years and years ago in Massachusetts, we were working in a sort of an expanded vacation Bible school format. It lasted for, I think, four weeks. We had hundreds of kids who came every day. And one of the workers was doing a Bible study with the kids and asked the question, how did Jesus die? Now, we're, we're in New England. It's heavily Roman Catholic. There are crucifixes everywhere. You kind of expect that somebody would get an idea. And the response was, I don't know. Was he shot? That was an inner city kid, given that kind of response. But it's shocking that a child, and it would have been in the middle 1990s, had no idea about the crucifixion, even though probably raised in a Roman Catholic environment. You see, we cannot assume any longer that unbelievers we meet will share our vocabulary and understand our message when we speak about to them about God. What is sin? Sin is cultural faux pas. Uh, maybe by sitting here in this room today, we're sinning according to the culture because we're talking about exclusivity. And inclusivity, apart from those who believe in exclusivity, is, uh, is the right way to go. See, sin now has become cultural, so that what used to be wrong is now right, and what used to be right is now wrong. It's flipped over. We say the word sin, they don't mean the same thing as us. When we say Christ, when we say salvation, and when we talk to people, they face the same problem. I know when I'm sitting on an airplane speaking to an unbeliever, that I have to work to set straight his false ideas of God and sin and Christ and salvation, while at the same time helping him to understand the truth. And catechism helps me, and it helps the people in the congregation, and it helps their children to be able to answer those questions briefly prepare them to be able to understand and to enter into a dialogue with a culture that has rejected the things of Christ. Consider a very famous and familiar passage 
of Scripture, Romans 12, 1 and 2, right? That if you get asked to preach at a, a Bible college chapel, how many times does the preacher end up preaching Romans 12, 1 and 2? We're very familiar with it. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You ever, you ever contemplate what's going on in that text? Because Paul calls us to be living sacrifices. You know what? That's a contradiction. There, there, are there contradictions in the Bible? Yes, here's one. Not the kind of contradiction that the opponent would bring up. But a sacrifice, when offered, gives its life. You see, it's dead. You have to take away the life to make a sacrifice. In the ancient world, to the Romans, when they received this, this would have been a startling statement. Because a living sacrifice is a paradox. And outside the experience of the average person. And yet the apostle tells the Romans, and he tells us, that this is our reasonable service. Or, you know, another way to translate this quite legitimately is, this is our spiritual worship. We worship God as we present ourselves to him as living sacrifices. But in order to do this, we must notice two things. We do this by the mercies of God. And of course, if you've been reading the epistle These are the divine blessings that are granted to us in Christ. The Lord has taken us. We were his enemies. We were people who lived in the deepest and darkest of sin, and we have received grace in justification by his mercy. These are the mercies of God. But secondly, we present our bodies as living sacrifices through the renewing of the mind. We were ignorant when we lived in sin. And the pressures of this evil world sought to shape us in its own image. But based on who God is and what he has done, his mercies, he calls us to present ourselves via the mind so that we know what the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God is. Knowing the will of God is not a mystical experience by which we hope that we can come to his perfect will for our lives. That's not what it is. We should keep that idea away from our teenagers. How do I know God's will? Read the Bible. uh, Knowing the will of God is transformation that comes by renewing the mind. And that's learning, knowing, and believing everything that God has revealed to us in his word. Think about it like this. For yourselves, for your children, for your neighbors, your friends, those that you talk to. If we don't know who God is, we worship idols. Even professing Christians can do that. So a good question to ask yourself is simply this. Who is God? Who is God? God is a spirit, eternal, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, holiness, power, justice, goodness, and truth. That's the straightforward answer of the Shorter Catechism. That becomes then a a means of meditation and contemplation that helps us to realize that God is not the invention of my mind, nor is he what I think that he is or wish that he is. 
but rather objectively he is what he reveals himself to be in the word of God. So he's infinite, he's everywhere. I've got a sermon that I preach sometimes on Psalm 139, and the title of the sermon is God is Nowhere. And I'm not using that cute little thing where you know somebody talks about God is nowhere and then they change it, God is now here. No, no, no. I was reading a, a, an old Puritan book one day and I came across this phrase separated from the rest of the paragraph and it said, God is nowhere. You know what? That's true. God is nowhere. There's no one place to which God can be confined. God is everywhere. He does not have a location. He manifests himself at times in certain places. We, we are allowed to see the picture of him sitting upon the throne, but that's not to say God is there. I, I had a young man one time tell me, well, I think that you know, the, the uh, omnipresence of God means that as he sits in heaven, he's able to see all things that happen on the earth. No, God is here now, but God is nowhere, and that he has no specific location to which he confines himself. Nothing on earth can confine him. So when we ask the question, who is God, we have to think about it in those terms. God is not a created being. So everything else is creature, and then there is God. God is not bound by time. So when we think about eternity, I've tried to make myself no longer say eternity past or eternity future, because eternity is just eternity. There's no succession of moments there. Who is God? Another question that we might ask ourselves is, who are we? Who am I? Most people, without perhaps realizing it, live their lives as if they are the center of the universe. But we need to know that this isn't true, and we need salvation. So you ask the question, who are you? What is sin? You're a sinner. Unless we know who we are, unless we know what sin is, we cannot live righteous lives. In fact, that's one of the problems that intrudes on the doctrine of Christian liberty, what is sin? It's not a cultural faux pas. See, it's, it's not a violation of propriety, of neglecting to say hello to someone when they walk in the room. Sin is any um, violation of or transgression of the law of God. Sin has to do with what God himself has revealed. Not whether or not, um, you know, I, I happen to burp at the wrong time and don't say excuse me. We need to know the difference between righteousness and wickedness. What about who Christ is? When that Jehovah's Witness knocks on your door, I did not have time to talk to him two weeks ago. I was in the middle of something and I had to say, sorry, not today. But there have been other times when I've talked to the JW at the door or some other cult member. What do you say? If you know the catechism, which is an explanation of the confession... It will give you help in being able to respond. I learned long ago never to let the Jehovah's Witnesses um, get me on their path. You force them onto your path. And your path is Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead. Why don't you believe that? <laughs> well, I, I, no, no. Give them the gospel. Turn them there. And don't let them uh, deceive you with all kinds of silly questions that they may present to you. What is salvation? We've said that the central section of the confession of faith is about God's covenant. 
and we are able to enjoy its blessings. But unless we can, in one or two sentences, explain the nature of salvation. Now, it's a, it's a bottomless mine full of rare jewels. But at the same time, the Word of God does give to us some simple explanations, and the Catechism gives these things to us. You know, what I've just gone through, pardon me, all these things are just basic facts of the faith. And it's the Catechism interpreting the confession which presents to us the doctrine of the scripture that helps us and our children to be able to understand these things. Oh, there's so much more that I wanted to say that I'm going to have to skip over things. Look at 2 Timothy 1.13 with me. Paul, this is just one of many of these kinds of statements. Romans 6.17, God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Romans 14.1, receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. 1 Timothy 6, 2 through 4, teach and exhort these things. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ into the doctrine which accords to godliness, he is proud knowing nothing. And you have before you, 2 Timothy 1.13, hold fast the pattern of sound words which you've heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Paul gives this exhortation to Timothy who's functioning as an elder in a church and by implication he says this to all of us, we are to hold fast the pattern of sound words. And this is not simply the words of the Bible, but it's the doctrine that is taught in Scripture. Let me give you two examples. The first is the most obvious. It's the doctrine of the Trinity. You know you won't find that word used in the Bible. And yet it names a doctrine that is foundational to all of Christianity. To deny the doctrine of the Trinity is to deny the faith and to be marked out as an unbeliever. We cannot recognize anyone as a Christian believer who denies, openly and straightforwardly denies the doctrine of the Trinity. Now it requires careful study. It means we bring together a variety of texts. We read verses that teach us that there is only one God, like the Shema, and we assert this with vigor and hold fast to that doctrine unswervingly. Brothers and sisters, there is one God, never doubt that. But at the same time, we read verses in the Bible that speak of God the Father. We speak of Jesus as the eternal Son of God. We speak about the Spirit as a person who, or we read about the Spirit as a person who is to be worshipped as God. And so God is one and God is three. Now, to many in the world in which we live, that's incomprehensible. Muslims, tritheists, oneness Pentecostals, incomprehensible. And so they deny the full deity of the Son and the Spirit. Or others fall into the trap of modalism. That is that in the Old Testament, God was the Father, and then during the Gospel eras, God was the Son, and now God is the Holy Spirit. As the video on the Internet says, that's modalism, Patrick. 
But historic Christianity argues that the doctrine of the Trinity is clearly taught by the words of Scripture as we compare verses with each other. And friends, this is the faith. This is the doctrine according to godliness. This is the form of doctrine to which we are delivered, the pattern of sound words. So when I ask you the question, how many persons are there in the Godhead? And you say, there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I know that you're a Christian believer at that point, or at least that you can articulate the most basic doctrine of the Christian faith. The second case study is about a fundamental doctrine, the eternal deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. There are many groups who will acknowledge him to be a great teacher or moral leader, but who deny his divine nature. They can't conceive of how God can assume a human nature. In the history of the church, there have been many who can't live with this profound tension. Some wanting to maintain his deity have denied his humanity. They're called docetists. Docetists from the Greek word dokeo, meaning he seemed. He seemed to be a man. Put on a good show, but he wasn't really a man. Others recognized his humanity, but denied his deity. The Arians, or my punching bag for today, the Jehovah's Witnesses. And they will quote scripture to you as they stand at the door. Didn't Jesus himself say, my father is greater than I in John 14, 28? How will you, your people answer this? How do you argue with the Bible? If you are well instructed, you will know that our Lord Jesus is God and man, one person with two natures. Some texts speak of his deity, others speak of him as mediator. As one old writer said it, this is wonderful. This is George Gillespie, the Scottish Presbyterian. He said that there are things that may be affirmed of him as the second person of the Trinity, which must be denied of him as he is mediator, and some things be denied of him as he is the second person in the Trinity, which must be affirmed of him as he is mediator. Now, a catechism, which summarizes the confession, which summarizes the scriptures, is a helpful way of putting into our minds and the minds of our children these doctrines of the Christian faith. So I want to urge you to think through this and find a way in which you can be like those who have gone before and for almost 400 years catechize your families, teach them. You know, the other day uh, we were recording some podcasts and I was recommending uh, an article by B.B. Warfield. It's in his selected shorter writings, and it's about uh, the importance and the benefits of the shorter catechism. And then yesterday, uh, or maybe it was the day before, one of the speakers at the Puritan Conference mentioned this very article. It's a story, uh, he, he suggested that maybe it was about Warfield's brother. They were in the midst of a great turmoil in some city. He was, his brother, or whoever this person was. And he was walking along the street in the midst of this turmoil, and another man was coming towards him in perfect calm in the face of what was going on. And they walked past each other, and the man Warfield describes turned around and looked at the other who did the same at the, at the very moment. They turned and looked at each other. And the other man walked over to him, and he put his finger on his chest, and he said, you're a shorter catechism boy. And Warfield's brother, if it was his brother, said, yes, I am, and so are you. And the, the reason that they said this to each other is that they were able, because of what they had learned as children, to be calm in the midst of a great turmoil. 
The shorter catechism had given them categories by which they could be comforted. Brothers and sisters, that's, we need that, especially in the world in which we live. We need to know what the Bible teaches as that is summarized for us in our confession of faith and as it is expressed for us in our catechisms, because that's what the catechism is for. They asked William Collins to take the doctrines of the confession, as they're found in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and make them available for the Baptist families in the 1690s. We need to do that as well today.